This podcast is sponsored by the Music Player Network at musicplayer.com, the premier musician resource for keyboard players and beyond. Since the year 2000, the Music Player Network has been the go-to source for news and views on music technology, playing tips, and gigging help. The Keyboard Corner is one of the longest-running keyboard forums in Internet history, with guitar, bass, drum, and numerous recording and music tech forums also on offer. Frequented by weekend warriors, manufacturers' representatives, and professionals alike, MPN provides an invaluable resource for any musician, and it's 100% free to sign up and use. Go to www.musicplayer.com to see for yourself. Hello and welcome to the Keyboard Chronicles, a podcast for keyboard players of the gigging variety. I'm your host, David Holloway, and I'm pumped as always to be here with you. Um, and I've got with me a man who puts the present in presentation. How are you, Paul? Oh, I like that. The present in presentation. Well, I am present and I'm you feeling are. very present because I'm looking forward to our chat with Rachel Eckroth. Yes, um, we're, we're very much looking forward to speaking with Rachel about her amazing career. She's, she's supported some great artists from St. Vincent to Rufus Wainwright, and we'll be talking about all of that. She's done some TV work, a whole, and her amazing solo career alone is worth a chat. So, um, yeah, look, looking forward to jumping in, and um, we'll talk to you after the show. Rachel, so wonderful to have you here. Really appreciate you taking the time. No problem. Um, so I, I, if I'm following your page correctly, you've already had a busy day today, haven't you? Um, I, it, yes, I always have a busy day. <laughs> so, um, But I start a little tour tomorrow, so I'm just sort of home like prepping for that to start. Oh, tell us about the tour. So I know you're touring in sort of April, May, June with different artists. And that. So what, yeah, what, what have you got coming up in that respect? So this week is um, my trio, uh, and my trio personnel changes often, but it's um, Tim Lefebvre on bass and Gary Novak on drums, and we're just going to go, um, we're going to do four four gigs in um, kind of the, the southwest of the U.S. and playing playing the music from the garden, which is an Great, album I yes. put out last year. And we're definitely yeah. going to talk a lot more about that. And then I believe you're then touring uh, from memory with uh, St. Vincent for a few shows, I think it is, and then Mike Gordon. Yeah, so it's actually so in um, in May I do the same uh, the Garden tour with a different trio, but in Europe. So we're going to do that in May. Um, that's like the second half of May, and then yeah, St. Vincent I, I catch up with them in early June in Spain, um, and then yeah, and then Mike Gordon after that for the rest of June into July. Okay, cool. And just so, uh, just as an aside, Rachel, how, how why my uh, how did you come across Mike Gordon? We'll talk about the other artists in a minute, but just Mike Gordon, how did that come about? Yeah, um, he reached out um, through Michael League, the bass player from Snarky Puppy. Um, I mean, Michael League is basically Snarky Puppy. So um, yeah, that was it. I think he was just looking for some fresh blood. His keyboard player left, or. I don't know if it's forever, but he left to go play with them, Roger Waters. So, 
Great. No, that's great. <laughs> no, so let's talk about you for a little while. So tell us, Rachel, about your upbringing. What, what was it that um, inspired you to originally pursue a career in music? And, you know, when did you know that, that it was something you wanted to do full time? Yeah, my parents were musicians. My dad, mostly, he was a band director for a little while when we were real young. But And he was a pianist and he grew up in a music education family and they have there's a music store actually in the north of the u.s called eckroth music so it's just kind of like in the family and we as kids we all took piano lessons and you know my mom was a singer so i was always singing and um i think it was really young when i just um identified as a musician like five years old four years old and, you know, maybe around age seven, I was like, I definitely, I'm going to do music when I'm older. Although, like, you know, at that age, it's just kind of like a feeling. It's not really, your, I wasn't working towards it. <laughs> I was just practicing piano when I had to and, you know, learning music and, and enjoying music. But, but it didn't, I didn't really, like, really decide until I was in high school. Uh, and so what, what were those first bands like for you, Rachel, as far as what were the first bands or musical activities you're engaged in that really gave you the bug? Oh, wow. Okay. So I, I really specifically do remember um, being in high school big band. So in the jazz band and playing piano in that and sometimes trumpet in one of the bands. And um, I think it was when it was just kind of being in rehearsal every day and sort of starting to understand orchestration just by being a part of it and understand how instruments fit together and you know what sounds kind of good and what doesn't and um i went to a jazz camp one summer i think i was 15. so jazz camp up in the mountains in california and my friend was playing on his cd player the harry connick jr big band and i think when i heard that i was just like wow it's so huge and it's so good and it sounds like jazz and I love it and that was like the beginning of of everything I think just in terms of um the direction that I decided to go which has changed but but that was where the it sparked and what, so what level of formal instruction you've had I mean you're obviously an amazing player Rachel from all the research I've done but it's you know what what level of lessons who was an inspiration to you as a teacher sort of how did that all flow for you yeah, I, I took just like regular piano lessons as a kid and, and was in choirs and singing and stuff like that. But it wasn't until, um, well, I took a few p jazz piano lessons in high school with a guy named Charles Lewis from Phoenix, Arizona, um, who was, you know, probably like the most interesting jazz piano player we had out there where I grew up. Um, and then I went to college and I first went to UNLV in Las Vegas and studied with Stefan Carlson, who was a, a great influence. Um, just being in Las Vegas, you could, we could talk about that as a young young person, youngish, um, was a huge deal for me and just learning keyboards and all of that stuff. But um, I eventually went out east and, and went to Rutgers um, in New Jersey and studied with Stanley Cowell, who's an amazing jazz pianist. He passed a few years ago, but he was a huge influence just in playing the piano not just jazz but just being a good pianist 
I'm, I'm interested, uh, Rachel, in uh, as, as a, a jazz musician, and obviously everyone has influences, and you've mentioned a few already. How does that inform your current style of playing, and, and how have you developed your own style? Um, I think I think if if I think about my education and like Stanley Cowell and and you know I guess the studying part of it I, it it seeps into the way I play so I I guess I try to be as accurate as possible as you know melodic and you know dealing with tones and dealing with um, uh, like you know dynamics and and technique and all these things. Um, that not every musician or pianist necessarily thinks about it, you know. Um, it's just, it, I guess, having a formal education like that really causes you to look at your instrument from a lot of angles. Yeah, cool, great. Um, David mentioned earlier we're, we're going to explore um, a, a, your career from a couple of angles, one that you work with others, but then also your, your solo work. I'm really interested in the in the gig with St Vincent, which you know is is, is incredibly, from my perspective, interesting music, intricate music. I, I imagine it would be uh, really rewarding to to play that sort of music. But I but I'm also interested in how that that collaboration started. Yeah. Okay. I'll start from the beginning. I yeah. Uh, so my husband Tim Lefave is bass player. Um, he's kind of a collaborator in a lot of things, but he. He's friends with, you know, all the bassists and they have a thread on their cell phones. And, and I think at, at one point, um, Justin Meldell Johnson was texting, looking for, you know, some, a woman who plays these vintage instruments and is funky and can do these things, maybe sings, you know, and like my name came up in the thread a few times and, and, you know, it was just a fortunate, uh, coincidence I guess that I was married to Tim but um yeah I, th I think because Annie was looking for a woman I there's just not a lot of us that do all these things uh so <laughs> my chances were I guess kind of high to get that gig but but you know thank god you know people are you know people are giving women a chance <laughs> out there these days it seems a little more prevalent yeah, I don't, you know that's that, that's a great thing, but yeah, I feel like you're selling yourself a bit short. I, yeah. <laughs> your playing, your playing's amazing, so I, I, don't, I don't think we got that gig based on being female. I'm sure it was based. No, on no, no, no. Yeah, I don't, I don't think of it that way. But, but because she specifically, yeah, I understand. You know, mentioned yeah. it like that, then it's like oh, small and, pool right there. But and as far as the live aspect of that, which is obviously predominantly what you do with with St Vincent is live. The, the, it's a very performance. Uh, performative or theatrical sort of show to some extent. So was that a new thing for you or something that you'd already had some experience with? Um, I, I, it is um, in a way uh, theatrical, but I, I was playing with Rufus Wainwright before that, who was maybe a few levels higher in that way, just not higher, but... He just takes it a few levels deeper with the theatrics, um, and and the tour we went on was actually pretty tame for him. But uh, so so we had costumes. I'm used to like having to you know do moves or you know little little choreography things or whatever. Nothing major, but 
Um, so with, with St. Vincent, it's, it was really a, about the costumes for the band and just, you know, bringing the energy. Um, she really does all that, all the work with the theatrics and, you know, and the stage setup and everything. So we're just out there back there rocking out, but yeah, a couple little things to do. <laughs> but with, those, with those presentation elements in, in the case of St. Vincent, uh, is it pretty much she'll just go, yep, yeah, this is what you're doing? Uh, or, or do you guys get a chance to sort of contribute to what that might look like? She gives us a lot of freedom on that gig. Um, freedom just to be ourselves <laughs> on stage and also um, musically to be ourselves. You know, she's within the music, especially the last record, Daddy's Home, that we were touring. Um, there's so much space as a keyboardist to just add my thing in there. I feel like it almost in a way feels like a jazz gig and that it's like I'm creating every night different stuff, even though it's like in this in a certain lane, but um, it's it's a great feeling to just feel like I'm um, I'm not up to just playing parts that somebody else created. So. Yeah, there's that there's that creative and improvisational element to it, even though it's not you know jazz music as such. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right. Um, and, and speaking of jazz, I'm also interested in your work with uh, Chris Botti. Um, so mm -hmm. you know, working with a, with a, a, a jazz trumpeter. Uh, how can we compare and contrast that experience? That experience was actually <laughs> it was different than um, I think my part in the band because I was the keyboardist. I wasn't the pianist. I was the keyboardist. And, and the keyboards in that band really was play, really has the role of playing the string orchestra. So my part was about sound and, and kind of just getting that big fat layer underneath the band. Um, to a degree, I got to make up my parts, but there was a lot of written stuff. So it was kind of just like, you know, every night, how can I, how can I be expressive with a synthesizer? You know, pretty good software. I was using like um, cine samples and uh, I forget what else, but um, so it sounded really nice. And um, I think the the job was to be consistent, be consistently musical with what I've I've got up there. And then with Saint Vincent, it's it's a little more free. Um, and plus, I'm I was the only keyboard player, so I I'm I'm literally up there playing seven keyboards and just kind of having a good old time in my little box. <laughs> you raised a great point there, Rachel. What was the sort of introduction of you to the more technology, technological side of keyboard playing? So obviously from the jazz viewpoint, piano, um, what, what got you into the synths and, and sort of getting exposed to that side of things? Well, um, it mostly happened in Las Vegas when I was, I moved here when I was 19. I'm actually back in Vegas now, but um, I moved here when I was 19 to go to college um, you know, I grew up seeing my dad playing synthesizers and we used to, you know, it was the eighties. So it was digital mostly stuff. So we would get in there and program things and sample our voices and have, you know, have fun and make drum beats. So it's sort of been in my life. But when I went to Vegas, I, um, ended up in a lot of pop bands and I got myself a Roland XP 50, which was my first board, um, and just learned Less about programming sounds because the digital thing was a like a little trickier, um, but just more about you know getting MIDI stuff together and like setting up my playlists and getting you know 
all my sounds in order. I mean, it was, I was young, so, and then just more about playing the styles of, of different things other than jazz on a synthesizer and like understanding and learning what these sounds in the board were supposed to emulate. So it was like a small education back then. So that's when it started. Yeah, great. And so you mentioned before um, Rufus Wainwright. So let's talk about, again, how did that relationship develop? And you've already talked about the theatricality and how Rufus approaches a gig. Tell us about how that developed and, and what you learned from, from working with him. Yeah, that one came from, so I put an album out. So I have different, well, we'll talk about that later, but I've got different kinds of albums out. It's not all one thing. So I've, I put out in 2018 um, a record called When It Falls, which is produced by Tim Lefebvre and um, most, and, and it's all singing. It's all songs I wrote. And of course I'm playing on it, but it's very vocal featured and song featured. And um, we had the guitarist Jerry Leonard play on it, who Tim knew from the whole David Bowie circle. So Jerry played on it. And then, you know, I don't know, a year later, I guess, when the record came out and Jerry ended up being the, musical director for Rufus. So he remembered that I could play and sing and possibly open for Rufus and play in Rufus's band. So that's what I ended up doing. So he, he called me to do that. And um, so I had a very long night because it was like a two, it was a two record tour already. And then I would do an opening set in front. And, um, you know, just, just seeing Rufus be so consistent every night with his voice was you know probably the biggest thing I got out of out of that and like how how he was um you know he was serious about his craft but when he got on stage he was hilarious and and also just a great performer and it, it was inspiring and, and to sing with him was um that was like a one in a lifetime kind of situation so once in a lifetime it must have been challenging doing the support slot for for each night and then you know um, backing up and doing the actual show. How did you manage your fatigue and and focus over those those that tour? Yeah, I don't know. I think it was just the excitement of of being able to open and have these big audiences and get my music out there and and you know, feed off of the reaction of the audience, which was mostly good. So thank God for that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think it was like the adrenaline and the excitement of of doing it and doing my own thing. And I was the only one on stage. I was just in a little sea of keyboards and did my thing up there. And um, it was just exciting. It was exciting to um, be recognized as an artist. Absolutely. So that, that got me through. And, and also um, singing along with Rufus, it, it, it strengthened my voice. So I was able to get, you know, get through a year and a half of tours. Mm, that's amazing. And, and so um, it's not the other end of the spectrum, but KT Tunstall's a very different artist to either of the other two or the other three we've talked about now. Again, how did that come about? And um I'd imagine that was a, a different experience again, as far as playing with her. Um, it was, it was like more of a like a rock show kind of thing. Um, it was a little more part oriented than anything else. And I also was singing. So that's cool. I, 
My friend Solomon Dorsey, another bass player, so I keep getting gigs from bass players, <laughs> um, he recommended me because he, he moved out to L.A. and I had moved, just moved to L.A. And, I, you know, it's just kind of like he thought of me and I said, yeah, I'm not doing anything. So um, that, was, that was a cool, fun gig. It was just sort of, uh, it was a tiny band. It was just four of us. And uh, just fun to be like, be in a band that just felt, it, it was huge, but there, there was, you know, just four people, but it felt huge. It felt like we were really, um, really sounding good together as a unit. And um, that was also probably my first, like, I want to say that was my first pop tour, um, kind of like late in my life. But yeah, first like pop rock and roll artist that I was, had played with. So it was like a cool, fresh feeling, just something different. Yeah, well, on that subject, you know, we've just run through four artists that you've worked with and they're quite different to each other in, in the style and even you talking about what the requirement of each job was was quite different. I'm interested in what do you think it is about your, your playing and skill set that's made you such a good fit across so many of these different roles? I, over the years, have become a student of, of style and sound. Um, so, you know, it wasn't always that way. I was kind of a one, one dimensional, you know, uh, listening person in a way where it was just mostly like acoustic instruments. And, um, it took a little time to understand synthesizers and all of that stuff. But, um, but since I guess, I guess it was just sort of a dedication to it. It's like, you know, once, once you get asked to do a certain thing, you learn how to dissect all the parts you need in order to do the gig well. You know, what, what are, where's the music coming from? What's the style? What are the general sounds? What kind of keyboards were used on the real, the records? And, um, you know, how to make those sounds happen even if you don't have the keyboards. And just that, that skill set has become a lot stronger. You know, I can, I can get my Prophet 6 out and pretty much do most gigs on it <laughs> just because I figured out how to get the sounds like close enough to where it's believable. Yeah, right. so I, I assume then um, you, you, your mindset must be one of when one of these new opportunity comes up rather than go, oh, I've never done that before. I don't know if I could. It, it must be a case of, oh, how can I do it? You know, how, how can I explore yeah. this new challenge? Is it, would I be right in saying that? Very much. <laughs> There's some, yeah, something's coming up, which I won't talk about, but it's like one of those things where it's like, okay, I, I get what I'm supposed to do. Now let me learn how to do it. <laughs> so yeah, but, um, but yeah, definitely. I, I usually just say, yeah, I like the challenge. Uh, great, great perspective. And, and so the other thing, Rachel, that um, was very diverse that you've done in, in sort of the last six or seven years was the Meredith Vieira show. So you're part of a TV show band, which we've had previous guests on like Jeff Babco and others that have done uh, and are still doing TV shows. And it's a very, again, different skill set, tightly choreographed, you know, timing is everything. Um, how did that come about? And um, a, did you enjoy it? And I'm sure you did at times from what I've seen of the, the show reels. And, and B, what did you learn from that? I enjoyed it so much. It was one of, that's probably one of the favorite things I've done. Um, and it had less to do with like the music and stuff like that and more to do with the people in the band. 
and the backstage, you know, things that we were doing and all of that stuff. But um, that happened. Let's see. Here's a fun story. So the second time I moved back to New York, um, I was, let's see, I think I was about 34. And second, second try in New York just to, I don't know, who knows, I don't know what I was doing. But I, uh, I was running out of money. I was eventually like hanging on my sister's couch because I didn't know where I was going to go. You know, I ended up, I left my apartment and I just decided like put my stuff in storage. I don't know what to do. Let me, let me audition for some things. I was like thinking about coming back to Vegas and like trying to get the Cirque du Soleil gig, house gig or whatever, just anything. Cause it's just, you know, New York is tough. That's the bottom line. And everybody knows that. So, um, so I got a call to audition from my friend Everett Bradley, who I met a few times. He's a percussionist that plays with Bon Jovi and Bruce Springsteen, and he's a singer. And um, he was putting together an all-girl band, of course, for um, Meredith Vieira. And I, I went down in the basement of the place I was staying at for a month straight and just started practicing these four songs and just like super focused on it singing, learning how to play the bass parts, learning how to play guitar parts, uh, terrible, but still, I tried, and, and getting all the keyboard stuff down and just really kind of vi envisioning myself in that gig and just really going for it. And, you know, I'd wake up at seven o'clock every day for a month because I didn't have anything else to do, so I just put myself into it. And I went through the audition process and I didn't get it. And so I was like, hmm, this is weird because it really, really feels like it's supposed to be my gig. I just have this feeling. I don't know why. And about maybe two to three weeks later, I get a call from NBC saying that, oh, the pianist that was going to do it decided to move to, to Canada, where she's from. So I was like, I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. So I, so I got the gig and... Um, made some really great friends in this band and we just laughed and laughed and laughed. And, um, I, you know, I, I think TV, that whole thing is, it's just like a wheel that you get on and, and you can't, you don't get off until it's time to get off. You're just like, wake up every morning. I would wake up at four in the morning, be there by seven because take the train there and everything, get ready and then do the rehearsals and da, da, da. And then we would do like two shows a day and then go home at four be so tired that I couldn't do anything else and go to bed and do it again the next day. But, um, I think it, I think, you know, what I learned is, um, you know, a little bit about working in corporate land and having to follow rules and having to do things a weird way, even, you know, just cause the producers want this weird part of music and we'd have to learn it. And then they would say, no, never mind. And just a lot of, a lot of TV type stuff. Um, but it was a great opportunity, um, you know, be on TV, get a little bit higher profile. Um, we were playing like pop songs of, of, you know, the current time, which was, I think, 2015, 2016. And so, yes. Great, great experience. Is it something you'd like to do again, Rachel? Because I know, I think there was two seasons of the show, but am I correct that the house band wasn't for season two? So you would have done, what, at least 100 shows, I'm guessing? Yeah, we did a little over 100. We did like a season and a half. 
So it was great, you know, I paid my bills, I paid off my debt, you know, <laughs> I was able to have an apartment, <laughs> not just a couch. And uh, yeah, that, yeah, so I would, I would definitely do that again. TV is a, is a nice uh, place to be in terms of paychecks and consistent work. So, so let's talk about your solo work, which is incredible, Rachel. So, um, you, as you mentioned yourself, you don't just tend to do the one thing. So you've got a very unique and eclectic range of, of albums you've released. So if you had to describe your sound and influences, um, how, how would you do it? What, what have you been, you know, how's it shaped over the years um, releasing? I think it's, it's 20 albums, isn't it, you've released? Well, no, no, no. I mean, that's, that's kind of a misprint, but it's, it's, um, I've done like six, uh, six or seven of my own albums and then just been a part of a lot of other albums and did a little bit of producing and stuff like that. So, um, so yeah. From your first solo album, obviously we, everyone loves to do their first solo album and it's a great experience. And we quite often hear from guests that, you know, they, they sometimes look back on their first albums, not if not with embarrassment, but with some perspective of, I was still learning how things worked back then. How, how Looking back over those oh, yeah. solo albums you've done, how's your playing and style and composition developed? Well, the first, um, well, my first attempt at an album was when I was about 24 and I did a non-net, a jazz non-net thing. Um, and it was... You know, I went in blind. I had no idea, like, how a record was supposed to sound, you know, what what mixing even was. You know, I just knew how to write arrangements. And so, and I got my friends, and it was fun, you know. So we went in and did that. And uh, every once in a while, I listened, and I'm, and, and I'm just like, wow, this was recorded terribly. Um, but it's nice to have it, you know. It's nice to be able to listen and be like, I was, yeah, that was kind of cool for, like, a 24-year-old. And then I did a, a trio record, a jazz trio record, right out of grad school with my two of my best friends from Vegas. And um, that was a similar thing where I, we went to a good studio with a good piano and a guy who knew what he was doing and had a good reputation. So in that way, it was like safe, you know, so it sounds fine. We're just young sounding, you know, and then... Uh, and then I did my first um, singer-songwriter record where I finally like penned some lyrics when I was about, sorry, this bug is flying, um, <clears throat> when I was uh, about 30, 33, something like that. Um, and I guess I was kind of the producer and then this, this um, other keyboardist named Jesse Fisher was also the producer of part of it. And so we just went in his studio for like a year and, and worked on songs and did some arranging and that was a more, so I was doing the singer songwriter thing, but it was still like very jazz infused in terms of, um, horn parts. And like, I did a little bit string arrangements and kind of like little jazzy backgrounds and, you know, a couple cool songs came out of that, that I still do today. Uh, and so once I did that, I think then things kind of shifted, um, I think, I think I mean, that's about when the Meredith Vieira show started. And I think um, I just got into a world of like another, a different level of 
people doing stuff. I don't know if that makes sense. Just like musicians doing bigger things. And so just being, just seeing and hearing how things are done on a higher level was really helpful. Um, and then I met Tim Lefebvre and he has this whole sonic uh, thing that is so unique to him. And he brought a lot of that to the next record that I did called When It Falls. And he, you know, he produced it. And, and a lot of that was really influential on just what I do now, like with pedals and sounds and, and creating. So, yeah, I think it, you know, just the natural progression is just like every record gets better. And, and I just finished, a, it's coming out actually this week, um, a solo piano record. So <laughs> back to basics. Yeah, um, and that's that's called one. And as as this uh, podcast goes to air, it will have been released. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm I'm wondering, uh, Rachel, if you can you can share with our uh, with our viewers and listeners what the inspiration uh, for, for for that album was. What what the the key messages maybe that listeners can take away from it. Yeah. So one, um, it happened because. For so long, I've just been keyboarding, keyboarding, writing, arranging sounds, everything, playing many things at one time, singing, you know, that I just wanted to just get simple for a second um, and just go back to the beginning. And um, also just in a way assert myself as a pianist because, you know, a lot of people might know me just as a singer, actually, or people might know me just as a keyboardist and and have not heard me do like a jazz gig or something like that. So, um, I just, I, I guess in a way I want to, um, make sure there's recordings of all the things that I do somewhere, you know, somewhere before I leave the earth. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know for what reason, but it just, just sounds like a good idea. So, uh, yeah, so I decided, oh, I'll go in the studio. So my friends, the ones I did the first trio record with, Chris and Kevin, um, they have a studio in Brooklyn called Big Orange Sheep with a beautiful Fazioli piano. And so I went in there and I was like, let's just see what happens. I, so I had a couple tunes that I prepared, but it was mostly improvisations. Um, and nothing, it's not crazy jazzy, but it's, it's you know, just a little melodic um, improvisations that I came up with that, and I think it turned out just really vibey and nice and, and kind of a nice little listening uh, adventure. Yeah, so um, you, you recently released on, on your YouTube channel uh, Three Wheels. Mm -hmm. um, so is this typical of the, the, the sort of style and texture where we might hear on the one album? Yeah, definitely. Yep. It's, it's all like... Most of the songs are three minutes or less and just kind of little musings, you know, um, yeah. like 100% improvisation. So I'll just put my hands down and start and, yeah. yeah, well, it's quite, it's, you know, that, that track is, is lovely to listen to. So I really encourage everyone listening to our podcast to check it out and we'll, we will link to that in the show notes. Um, but also the album one, which is coming out. And that brings me to my next question, which is as a, a you know, very experienced writer, and musician and producer now, I'm just curious as to what the creative process looks like for you, both from an internal perspective, how does the muse strike you? How does that come out? And, but then also, you know, physically, how are you putting these things together? Um, well, do you want to talk about one, like a specific 
things. I mean, everything's kind of different, I guess. I, I think yeah. maybe maybe if we reflect on um, where you're at these days with it now, so maybe for one, how how that came together, but but certainly if you if you wanted to expand that out to just general things you've learned and and how things come to you, that's great as well. However, however you'd like to answer it, Rachel. You know, maybe we can talk about the garden first. So let's, yeah, that, that's probably the most um, successful record that I've done. So the garden was, um, it started with just being approached by a record label to do something a bit different along with Tim. Um, the label had, had seen us doing these improvisations with keyboards and drum machines and things like that and bass. And, and he was like, oh, maybe you could do something like that, but you know, a little more composed and refined. And, and so I was like, let's do it. And uh, so I just started composing like at the piano and there's, maybe one song with piano on that whole album, maybe two. And, uh, and yeah, so I just sat down, I started writing. I just tried to find Rachel, <laughs> you know, the things that, the things that I hear and typically play and typically write and, um, put them into song form. And while that was happening, thinking about who's going to be in the band, um, and then having Tim as the producer, he brings in like this other sonic side uh, with the synthesizers and the pedals and and the the product the production like the after after uh, mix kind of crazy stuff that happened. So there's a lot of like ear candy kind of stuff on that record that was a little more Tim than me. But um, so with that one, uh, it all sort of like it was sort of like a a slow process of deci making decisions like as the whole thing was coming together. It's like, you know, I, I was writing and then I started coming up with titles and like an idea that this is like a garden of songs, you know, and so now that all the titles fit that. And then I was like, oh, you know, I should write Donnie McCaslin would sound great on this. I love his sound. I know his sound. So let me write some stuff for him. And, you know, and that, that goes for the, everybody on the record, and uh, it, it, I don't, I don't know. It's just like a, what do you like? It just evolved, and then became awesome. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it obviously, and it obviously did. Um, and, and as you know, all lyrics and music's open to interpretation. But I mean, my take, Rachel, is that um, both with the garden and, and um, your previous albums as well, that uh, there's a lot of um, work on the themes of love, loss, personal growth. How do you actually navigate the vulnerability that comes with sort of writing and performing such personal material? Yeah. I learned that uh, writing a good song really depends how honest you are. <laughs> At least that's for me. Um, it, you know, when I first started writing lyrics, I was just trying to, well, number one, just trying to learn how to do it. But number two, um, trying to fit like in the mold of, of, you know, what I think songs were supposed to sound like or talk about or whatever. Um, and then when I started kind of going into personal stories and, you know, putting myself out there a little bit, uh, that's when they started to get better. And also, I, you know, I figured there's a way you can write where not everybody totally understands your secrets, you know, but, it, you know, you know, some people will pick up on it. And so just 
getting it out there and like performing it, it's a little scary, but it's also a little empowering because you're just like, here's my shit, deal with it, you know? But, um, but also like the more, the older, the older they get, you know, the, the older the songs get for me, then the less I'm attached to the stories behind them. And so it's just becomes a song. It's fine. <laughs> and, and Rachel, I think if you ever do a solo rock album, it should be called Here's My Shit. I think that's a great album title. <laughs> Here's my shit. Deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the subtitle can be It Became Awesome. That's my favorite yeah, line. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> Uh, and, uh, you know, being being serious, I think that that the 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 word that comes to my mind when I when I hear your music is authenticity, and so I think that's that's something that I'll I'll really encourage our listeners and viewers to to check out that that as David said that vulnerability that authenticity. I think it makes it easier for audiences to connect with the the, the themes that are present. So um, it's it's good to be able to share that with people. I imagine. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. And it's a cool feeling just to, um, you know, the more I grow as an artist or composer or whatever, um, you know, the more solid I feel in myself and the happier I am about this choice I made to become a musician. Yeah. It's, a, it's a never ending learning process and uh, it's quite gratifying and you know, if you work, if you, well, for me, if you just keep working, it's like, you know, it all comes together eventually. And I know it's hard to, to look back, but I mean, you just mentioned about, you know, making the right decision to being a musician. In your lifetime, was there ever a time where you thought, I have made the wrong choice? Not totally, not really, not 100%. Um, there just have been hard times where, I've had to try to get another job or something like that, but there's never been a time when I could quit music and I've had friends do it. You know, I've seen people really into music and then decide not to do it anymore. And I, and it just doesn't compute. <laughs> it doesn't work for me. I mean, who knows what the future is like, but so far it's like, that's kind of all I can do anyway. <laughs> did, did COVID make that challenging for you, Rachel? Uh, yes, I, it, it did, it did kind of make me question a lot of things that I do. Um, I think it actually made me focus more and work harder towards the things that are more important to me, like making quality good shit, you know what I mean? <laughs> so no, but, uh, but COVID, so when, when that happened, Tim and I went down to Tucson and sort of like hid away from the world. And we made a Patreon page, which is what I was talking about before, where we were doing all the jams together. And so we, we made this, you know, online thing that, and we got a bunch of subscribers and we were paying our rent and it was cool. It was good. You know, we were just working really hard to do it, to make it happen. Um, but that's good. It's good. I, we put the focus and the energy into that and things blossomed out of that energy. So um, you know, blessing in a weird way, but yeah. Well, and talking about you know, trying things differently and, and different approaches over your career as a live performer, you've performed in you know so many different venues and settings. And I'm curious, do you have a favourite live performance experience? And you know, if so, what would have made that 
experience or maybe series of experiences so special for you? Um, there's, there's a lot of different things that have been really awesome. Um, I think probably the biggest one was opening for Rufus. Uh, it just, it, it's just like you walk out, you know, it took me one gig to get used to the larger crowd, you know, it's like 2000 people or more. Um, cause at first just the thought of it is like daunting. It's like, Oh my God, how am I going to get these many people to want to be here? You know? And, uh, and before that it was, you know, not when I was do when I've done my own shows and things, it's always, you know, small clubs. 50 to 100 people at the most. And, um, yeah, so it was like a big challenge to get on stage and just be like, hey, I've, do I've been doing this for years. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think, I think when we played at the Beacon Theater, that was probably, that's in New York City, that was probably a big one for me. Um, because, first of all, it's like my, one of my hometowns. And so a lot of friends were there and um, we sold out and my name was on the marquee. So that was like, just a cool thing to see. <laughs> so that was probably like a favorite. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, there's, there's been, you know, there's a lot of like really great musical experiences that have happened in tiny places. So those are always really important too. Um, no, that's great, Rachel. And um, just before we get on to some of our standard questions, um, any advice you'd give? So you've, you've obviously got a stellar career and many, many, many more years of your career to go. Um, any advice you'd give to you know, young musicians that are thinking of making a living in music? You know, what, what would you advise them as far as trying to establish themselves in the industry? Yeah, I have, I have a couple of things that I always try to impart, and that's... Um, Number one is, is that nobody's going to want it more than you. So more than yourself. So if you're really serious about it, you know, don't expect people to give you anything. You have to go get it and you have to work for it. And nobody's, nobody cares about you. Do it yourself. You know, I mean, that's like a weird way to say it, but it's, it's in a way it's very true. It's like, I, I care so much about my songs, but like, why does my, you know, why does the guy next to me have to care if they don't? So there's that. And then there's just the idea of putting, you know, focusing your energy into the thing that you want. Because it's really powerful. And, and you know, it's not even, I'm not even talking about like energy. You know, it's not like this magic thing. It's like literally the amount of work you do and the amount that you're putting your heart and soul into something and taking care of it and making it happen. It, it will turn into something else you know it'll things will come out of that even if it's 10 years later so always important to just go all the way thank you so much for, for sharing that um we're interested in your favorite uh rigs keyboards you know you've mentioned a uh, love of vintage instruments uh, you've mentioned some some wonderful pianos that you've played on and you've also talked about surrounding yourself on stage with, with multiple keyboards, depending on the job, obviously. So we'd love to learn what, what are some of your favorite keyboards that you use, that you've used uh, in, in various contexts? Yeah, um, well, the Prophet 6 has been like, the, the sequential um, instruments Prophet 6 has been my main guy for seven, eight years. So that's probably been on most gigs with me. And I usually backline one when I can. Um, 
so super versatile and it's got and 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 the more I use it the better I become at it obviously so it's just like super fun now um, and I use a vintage vibe which is a company out here that's making electric um, electric pianos um, so they have their own line of electric pianos that are like kind of made like a Rhodes but it has a bit of a different sound and a little more um, it's they're newer they're modern so they they're a little more sturdy and you know and I, of course I have my one with my name on it so that's extra cool but but it's just a beautiful sound I'm gonna use that on the Mike Gordon gig this summer um, so vintage vibe and I, I really fell in love with the Mellotron that I got for the St. Vincent gig so I got the M4 thousand D I think it's what it's called so the bigger one and it's just it's so beautiful and you put some pedals on it and it's just like this glorious luscious you know these pads and great sounds and so that's a that's a great one that I love yeah great picks and yeah the vintage yeah. vibes are amazing pianos um, I've seen Matt Johnson sort of play them on his YouTube channel quite yeah, a bit yeah. there just great great pieces yeah. of gear um, so Rachel, another question we always ask is about tagging a keyboard player. So we're really pleased that we caught up with you because, um, Kerry Frank, when we introduced him, uh, when we interviewed him, sorry, uh, tagged you as someone that he would love to hear more about. So are there other keyboard players out there that you've always been interested in their career story that you would, you know, mention? I'm just trying to like, I'm trying to think of who hasn't been on your show already. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I would say Jason Lindner would be the, a good choice to talk to. He's an exceptional synth player, an amazing composer. He was on the Black Star album with Tim and Donnie McCaslin. And he's really my kind of like go-to guy um, to get ideas for the Prophet 6. <laughs> so I steal all his ideas and make them my own. But he, he's amazing. So incredible um, also an incredible career and, and just a master of, of synthesizers. Well, thank you for the suggestion. We're going to chase him hard. Look out, Jason, we're coming for you. Watch out. The other, one of the other standard questions we love to ask our guests is what are the five essential albums that you could not live without when you're stuck on that desert island? Ooh, okay. Let me see. This might take, you might have to edit these together. So, um, Love Supreme. You've heard of that, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So Love Supreme, John Coltrane, Sketches of Spain, Miles and Gil Evans. Um, I would say uh, Purple Rain, Prince. Fiona Apple's first record. And lastly would be, hmm, I really love the Charlie Hayden and the Charlie Hayden Liberation Music Orchestra. And I've got to say, that's impressive because quite often we warn our guests of that question, but I don't believe you would have received warning on that. So that's amazing you rattled those off so quickly. <laughs> well, it's because I've had this, I've had a lot of these in the last two years, but they're all different lists. So I'm just like, there's Good probably work. more. Um, so our last question is actually a quick fire 10 questions, Rachel. So just short and sharp answers to some um, different bits and pieces. So, um, uh, yeah, Paul, if you want to kick off. Sure, I'll, I'll start with what is the first keyboard you ever owned? Oh, so like I said, it was the Roland XB50. 
Yeah, great board too. It was amazing for its time. Um, most important pre-gig ritual for you? What do you do to get in the zone? Oh, I like to just be alone. I like to be quiet. Yeah. Do you think guitars are sexy or an abomination? Yes. Yes, that's the best answer ever. Yes, I think that's you win. Great. That is the best answer I've ever had. Well done. <laughs> um, transpose button, Rachel. Do you use them, or you tend to adjust on the fly given your training? I do not use a transpose button. Only octave transpositions. <laughs> What's the favourite gig you've ever done? One favourite gig. Wow. Um, there was a recent one we did last year where I got to, where we toured the garden for two gigs <laughs> and it was um, Nate Wood and Tim LaFave and I, and we just went off. We pl I think we played in New Hampshire um, at a little club and it was, it was, it, there might be some footage online actually, um, but it was just fiery and fresh and good. Great. And a hard pick to make, but favorite city that you've ever played in? Oh, hmm. You know, I really enjoyed San Francisco when I played there, opening for Rufus. That's a good answer. <laughs> That's a great answer. Can I, can I add an unscripted uh, supplementary question, which is why? What, is it, what was it about San Francisco? The audience was just wild and very receptive. So it was easy. A good, happy, generous audience. Yeah, cool. Nice. What's the best thing about playing live? Oh, getting to express your emotions through music, I think. And worst thing about playing live? Um, being on stage <laughs> and everybody's looking at you. <laughs> I was a very shy kid, very shy kid. Um, I, I definitely <laughs> like to... I like to perform in a way, but I also don't want anybody to see. <laughs> so. I don't think yeah, that's I'm, unusual I'm, with keyboard players. I think that's yeah. common. Um, yeah, well, you know, I did hide behind a keyboard most of my life, so it makes sense. <laughs> uh, name one thing, Rachel, that you'd like to see invented that would make your life as a keyboard player easier. I, I need like a, a robot assistant that can carry gear and do everything else. So. Robot roadie, I love it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> final question, what is your favourite non-musical activity? Oh, you know, I like, I like working out. <laughs> I like going to the gym and being physical. So. Yep, right. good one. Rachel, we can't thank you enough. You've spent um, an hour with us and we hugely appreciate it. When I said at the start, like um, people should follow Rachel's Facebook page. Um, I know you've been in the studio a bit. I think today or yesterday you were in the studio. You're, you're flat out. You've got a tour tomorrow. So re really take, you know, appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. It's, it's been great. Thank you so much. And I hope to come back to Australia soon. We had, I've had a lot of good shows out there too. So. <laughs> oh, we should have talked about that. But yeah, that's great. No, we'd love to see you down here. Paul, that was a buzz. Great to talk to Rachel. What, what an amazing career she's having. I, I'd argue she's not even halfway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she's done so many cool things. 
And what, what I loved learning about Rachel was how she's tried and thrown herself into so many different musical styles. Yes. You know, there's the jazz, which is, I think, her, you know, her real love and passion. And, and the album she just released is, is all her piano musings, just, as she said, straight from her hands onto the keyboard, which is cool. But then she's got the, the TV work, the pop background, the rock stuff, and she throws herself into it with such a great attitude. And I think we can all take a bit of that for ourselves in terms of how we approach any projects that we do. Absolutely. We've had a bit of a run. I mean, obviously, those that listen to our two-part um, interview with Mike Garson, I mean, if ever there was, you know, the definition of improvisation, it's Mike and, and Rachel's another, you know, great um, person in that sort of genre. And, yeah, just amazing. So we'll, we'll obviously do check out the show notes. We, we quite often mention in interviews about the show notes, but we do make sure that all the key aspects are, are linked to there and do check out Rachel's music. It is well and truly worth it. So, yes, um, once as always, want to thank our key supporters. So um, a huge shout-out to the musicplayer.com forums. Uh, I know they've been my home and Paul's home um, since about 2001. It's a long yeah, time. Yeah, you've been there a bit longer old. than I have. Yes, you've been there a bit longer than I have. But yeah, I, 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 I think started hanging out there in about 2015. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, a, a great place, and encourage all musicians to visit it. It's brilliant. You know, great people. Um, so, um, brother Paul Brown from the Water Boys, love your work, brother Paul, as always. And again, if you haven't watched the brother Paul interview, it, it was after our interview with brother Paul that he very kindly started to support the show. Amazing um, life history and let alone how he plays, just a force of nature, as I always mention. I think it's about the 10th time I've mentioned his force of nature. It's one of my <laughs> favourite go-to terms. Um, and Tammy Catcher, Tammy's Musical Stew, we couldn't do it without you, Tammy. Hugely appreciate your support as always. Um, and uh, Radio Grande, a brilliant YouTube channel that reimagines uh, great uh, songs from a funk and soul viewpoint. If you like things like Scary Pockets or um, even Snarky Pup, Puppy, sorry, Darren and team, I'm talking about big time here, but you are you do do a great job. Um, and finally, but definitely not least, so that's mangling last but not least, and finally, go me, um, <laughs> Midnight Mastering. So midnightmastering.com. I have used Mike and the team at Midnight Mastering for my own highly unsuccessful ambient projects. <laughs> um, but that, un that non-success is nothing to do with the mixing and mastering. He literally transformed... Uh, the work that I, I did. And it, look, it has had some interest. Like all of us on Spotify, you're competing against 24 billion other people, um, which, you know, that, that's just life. So yeah, midnightmastering.com. Thank you all for your support. We really do appreciate it. So we'll be back again in a fortnight or so. Uh, I think we mentioned last show that the interviews are coming thick and fast, so it might even be more regular than a fortnight over the coming weeks. Um, do keep in touch. Our website is www.keyboardchronicles.com. Facebook, we're The Keyboard Chronicles. Twitter at The Keyboard CHR1. Um, and then good old-fashioned email at editor at keyboardchronicles.com. Love to get emails, and we do get them. And a thanks to Pete from Scotland. Pete and I, um, Pete's a regular listener. We've had a nice to and fro on email. He's been really enjoying the shows. And Pete runs his own podcast, which I do actually highly recommend. If you're into fly fishing, now here's a niche of Keyboard Chronicles listeners who are into fly fishing. Check out the Fly Fishing Podcast, and I apologise, Pete, I can't remember the title off the top of my head, but there are only a couple of Fly Fishing Podcasts. Do check it out. 
Yeah, you know, Pete, just just uh, just write into David and chastise him for forgetting the name of your your podcast. But you know, I was just thinking about that, reflecting on fly fishing, and I, I'm not a fisherman's bootlace, by the way. But but I can see the two disciplines, playing keyboards and fly fishing. I can actually see some some synergy there, right? Because they both require a, a certain amount of uh, precision, skill, dedication to your craft. And being able to, you know, I think deal, deal with, you know, long periods of time by yourself, uh, getting, getting, getting to know your own personality and, and, and getting to know how that re- relates to the world around you, whether it's being surrounded by black and white keys and, and uh, other musicians or, or stages and sound checks or nature with, uh, with beautifully bubbling streams and exactly. uh, the sounds of birds in the forest. No, exactly. And um, I, I don't think I'm mistaken that one of the guests, and it's, um, it is the Fly Fishing Magazine podcast, which will no. help you find it, um, is Peter's had uh, Fergal Sharkey. For those that are 80s tragics like me, Fergal Sharkey is an avid fly fisherman. He's been Isn't on the show. Yeah. That's, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not getting that wrong. I'm sure Fergal's been on, on his show. So, yeah, yeah. so definitely check it out. Anyway, that was a long-winded way of saying we love hearing from you. Do do reach out. It it is a highlight for us. Um, And as always, if you'd like to become an official supporter like those ones we've shouted out to previously, um, just go to patreon.com forward slash keyboard chronicles. And even if you don't want the shout out for the price of a coffee a month, you can really help keep this little boat afloat. Paul, thank you, sir, as always. David, again, thank you for inviting me to uh, share these these uh, great chats with these amazing keyboard players. And at least you don't expect an invite in the mail anymore. The key, you've you've got a key to the front door, and um, you've got your own couch in the living room. So it's, yeah, it's yeah, and, be. and look, uh, if if you could kindly uh, stop eating the food that I label that I put in the fridge, <laughs> that'd be really helpful to me. Oh, oh dear, <laughs> yeah. Look, I, I I commit to nothing. So. <laughs> And mostly, and most importantly, thank you all out there for listening. We do appreciate it. We appreciate all the new listeners we get each episode and all of those that have stuck with us from the beginning. Um, So as I said, we'll be back very soon. And in the meantime, have a great time.